Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 141. So glad you could join me on this fine Sunday morning. Um, Janice Ann Harrington is here. She's our main guest. She'll be with us in about 10 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button, share, make sure you're subscribed. Anything you can do to spread poetry around the internet is all that we ask of you. So please do it right now, like click something, seriously. Um, now, Amy Miller is here to start off. She is not today's Poets Respond Poet, but Tuesdays. We kind of flipped it this time. So Christine Potter is going to be here toward the end of the episode. Um, Amy Miller is here right now, and she has a poem that you haven't read yet. Um, it's called The New Superstitions. And uh, here she is, Amy Miller. Hey, Amy, how you doing? I'm good. It's very nice to be here. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's great to have you again. You are on the Rattlecast. If anybody wants to check a full show with you, I think I don't remember what number it was, but if you look through the rattle.com slash rattlecast, it's on there somewhere in like the 100-ish or 80s-ish. I'm not sure where, but it's somewhere on there. Um, so it's good to see you again. And you have this poem that we're going to be publishing on Tuesday um, called The New Superstitions. Do you want to explain what it was about? Sure. Um, yeah, it was about a, a news story that just came out a few days ago uh, that's about Bill Murray, uh, the actor Bill Murray, who was just fired from the movie project that he's working on uh, because of some inappropriate behavior was all that the production company would say about it. Um, and NPR had a, a story about this. And uh in it, it detailed a bunch of uh, previous inappropriate behavior, which was uh, all kinds of things from pushing somebody into a lake to allegedly hitting his ex-wife to uh, throwing a, an ashtray at Richard Dreyfus, um, verbal, verbally and physically abusing lots of people for uh, decades now. So it's been going on a long time. Um, it was, you know, of course, a, a disappointment, also sort of not a surprise because these celebrities are being exposed one by one you know we've lost a lot of them sort of out of the pantheon in these past few years um but it really struck me in particularly in particular that a lot of this uh, aggressive behavior was directed toward women uh kind of couldn't escape that and uh it got me thinking about the the hyper vigilance that women live with all the time in our culture um, all of the, the things that we learn to do and not do and say and not say and be and not be to, uh, to avoid uh, that kind of violence and that kind of abuse. And uh, they sort of become like spells and incantations to ward off evil. Um, and then there's also this culture of celebrity thing about holding up people, you know, as, as paragons of being wonderful when we don't know them at all and we will never know them. And we don't even know the people in our own lives all that well. Um, so there was there were a lot of layers kind of moving through uh, this poem that that sort of uh, went off into some wild territory that I wasn't really expecting it to. But uh, the subconscious sort of did the driving on this one. Yeah, it's one of those poems you can really tell that the freedom of movement. And, and those were the two things that I was thinking about a lot as reading it. It just brings up those those two topics of, first of all, I thought Bill Murray was great. I mean, I was a Bill Murray fan. I thought he would, you know, there's those, those anecdotes about him crashing parties and things. And he just seems like just a playful, fun person. And, and then, you know, you just don't know people. You have no idea what they're really like. And then um, the other thing that made me think of was a really formative experience for me. I was um, walking home. I must have been like 16 or 17 years old. Um, I was walking home from work. Um, I worked at the grocery store at the time down the street. And um, there was a woman like struggling with her bags. It was like like nine o'clock at night. It was dark. 
and she was like had all the stuff she was trying to carry and I was just walking down the street and I um I offered to help and I saw like she was afraid of me and that it never occurred to me what it would be like to be like I was just being like being friendly and and knowing that 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 interaction exists and that there's always that sense of caution that you have to you know take which I completely took for granted and had no idea about um and that just you know taught me that I need to be careful about how I approach people and present myself not to f- come across that way as much as I can um but anyway so th- that reminded me of this too that could have been one of the stanzas in this poem um mm-hmm. but why don't you go ahead and read it the new superstitions okay the new superstitions when the movie starts cross yourself for all the nights and weekends lost by the long list of workers for the ones who got sick and quit the business who blew all their money on shrinks for the one who got beamed by an ashtray thrown by the petulant star. Walking by a playground, throw bark over your left shoulder as you watch the little boy tease the girl, the budding man inside him rising like a fist. Wear your lucky slob clothing while you watch the movie of the man playing a slob, his sideways sneer like your own while you crash daily into the obstacles of love and faith, while you try to balance a coffee in one hand and your childish expectations in the other, while holding in the fold of your belly a fear of being made a fool, of loving a photo of someone, or maybe an actual body living right there with you, who has always set off your alarms, but you choose to think they're only your own irrational blood pounding in your ears for no real reason. On the sidewalk, step over every doubt. You have no room for them. You are busy and you want to like what you like and go to bed without a nagging thought that burrows in and wakes up your body at 2 a.m. whirring in the dark. Do not walk under the ladder of your friendly neighbor who has always been too friendly and damn it, you don't want to think that. You want to be stoned on kindness like a yoga teacher but you also have caught him looking down from his upstairs window late at night while you're bringing in the trash can. And damn it, that's never felt right. If you break your car's side mirror, you'll get seven years of some guy watching you eat your lunch as you sit in the safety of your 67 Cougar before you realize his face hasn't moved from his mirror and he's watching you steadily, sitting in his car in the next row in the lot bouncing you off a 45 degree angle and making some motion you see just enough of to know. And you start your car and drive away nonchalantly as if you didn't notice, watching in your mirror to make sure he doesn't follow. While you watch the movie, light incense to bring you back to yourself, to remind you that you are living here now, that the world has always had dickheads that you are not sitting one with sitting with one right now. And outside a frog has started up croaking behind the hawthorn bush. And he's talking about sex and maybe some aggression, but you know exactly where he's coming from. And you're not a frog, so it's just a song, something that lulls you to sleep as all lullabies are darker and more dangerous than you once believed. But even sleep is now something different not entirely pure, but it has its pleasures, its emptying 
its motionless beauty. Yeah, and that's going to be Tuesday's poem. That is The New Superstitions by Amy Miller. Um, and Amy, you mentioned uh, in the email that you were... Um, that you've been writing a lot for for um, National Poetry Month. Um, so, so can you just explain a little bit what that's like? Are you doing a poem a day? Yeah, yeah. I've been doing this for about ten years, uh, which I thought was nutty at the at the start. Um, uh, I do it with a uh, with a group of people. There are about fifteen regulars who who write all the time. That we're all over the country. We have a private Facebook group that we that we write in. Uh, so that only we can see the poems and they're not considered published uh, and, you know, in their very first drafting or whatever. So we really bond over that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and I've come to rely on that and another 30 day writing marathon, uh, which is the postcard and poetry fest in oh. August. Mm-hmm. They both generate a lot of material for me. I do a lot of writing during those times. And so I have a lot of drafts to work on for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little irregular in my habits otherwise, and very undisciplined about writing. And this is, these are like the two times of the year when I'm pretty disciplined. <laughs> I've been a little sloppy this April. This has been kind of a, a lumpy month. But mm-hmm. um, I've only missed about four days or so. That's not too bad. We're at the twenty fourth, so yeah, yeah, pretty so good. Looking good. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks. I'm so glad uh, you could write and share this poem. A really, really great one, and um, and so glad you could join us today. Thank you. Really glad to be here. Yep. Take care. This is Amy Miller, um, and um, we're going to take a quick break and go to today's main guest, uh, Janice N. Harrington. So I'm going to uh, put up the the bumper and some splash music, and I'll be right back in just a moment. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. As I mentioned, today's guest is Janice N. Harrington. Um, Janice was interviewed in Rattle Number uh, 75, the spring issue, which has a tribute to librarian poets. Um, Janice N. Harrington writes poetry and children's books. She grew up in Alabama and Nebraska, and both of these settings, especially rural Alabama, figure largely in her writing. Her first book of poetry, Even the Hollow My Body Made is Gone, won the A. Pollen Jr. Poetry Prize from Bow Editions and the Kate Tufts Discovery Award. Her second book of poetry, The Hands of Strangers, Poems from the Nursing Home, came out in 2011. And her third book, Primitive, The Art and Life of Horace H. Pippin, appeared in 2016. Harrington's children's books have won many awards and citations, including a list among Time Magazine's top 10 children's books. Harrington has worked as a public librarian and now teaches in the creative writing program at the University of Illinois. And here she is, Janice and Harrington. Hey, Janice, how are you doing again? Hello, Tim. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, it's and- great to see you again. I loved our interview. Um, it was so great to get to you know explore your life. And like the, we sort of, more than maybe most interviews, we went through this whole sort of journey about um, starting from childhood through um, your later <laughs> yeah. life and how you came to, went from one thing to another. And that was a lot of fun. And then, and then these great books, which I, I love all three of your books. Um, you. So it's really cool to have you on sharing some poems. Do you want to start with a poem? Uh, what do you want to read first? Sure. Um, I think all... All three. Well, we were we were talking about which which of my poems had appeared in Rattle. So I think I want to start with the Rattle poem. So I'll start with Molly, and then maybe do May Ingalls and Ode to a Bedpan. Sure, sounds good. Okay. Or maybe I'll go like Molly, Ode to a Bedpan, and then May Ingalls. That might be it. Might be good to, to end with the May Ingalls one. Okay. Unlike the others, with her, it was never enough, or quick, or half done, and never because it was endless, done with anger, or jaws grinding enough, enough. It was done carefully, spreading thighs, lifting the scrotum with its rope of penis, the leaves of labia eased aside, a washcloth slicked with soap, 
washing flesh and flank in a tide of heat, of touch, of water. This was intimacy, a shame they couldn't hide, but it didn't matter. Handmade, menial, servant, daughter, each movement precise, each movement ceremony, cradling these white fleshed raku, each holding its fill of bitter tea. All the exquisite parts of her work, fingers, palms, wrists, arms, shoulders, intent on the motions of cleaning and drying. The certainty that one day she too will lie waiting in a county bed, seeking compassion from the hands of strangers. And that was Molly from Rattle Number 15, uh, before I was even here at Rattle. And, uh, and that's also from your book, uh, Hands of Strangers. Uh, right. And, uh, and, and the title comes from the, the last line in that poem. Um, it's always cool, maybe if you don't know, as an editor, it's always cool to say, oh, we got the title poem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so it's always nice to see the poem that the, the title that the book comes from. Um, so to, to, in the interview, we talked about, you know, you grew up in rural Alabama, um, spent a lot of time on your, your grandmother's or grandparents' farm. And then, you know, in the Great Migration, your family moved to Nebraska. Um, you fell in love with being with libraries and became a librarian. And then um, and then with storytelling and those kind of those things. And then and then into poetry and into children's books. Um, one of the things that, that interested me that we brushed over and I, I was I made a note um, as we were talking because um, it was such an interesting thing that I hadn't thought of before is it, the role that the church played in um, in falling in love with poetry. Um, and, yes. and it occurred to me, um, and it was just one line that you happened to mention, but it occurred to me that like the the um, amount of, of poetry appreciation in society has decreased in proportion to church attendance decreasing. Like it's like the same fall off. Oh. And, and, the, and, you know, thinking about that, like you were talking about the rhythms of the King James Bible, um, but also like figurative language and thinking of things through, um, through metaphor rather than literal and, and all the poetic devices that go into experiencing church every Sunday. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the role church played in, in becoming a poet? Yeah. Um, it, the church affected me in several ways. One, you hear these extraordinary orators, which the, the black minister, the, the, the sermons that they gave every Sunday, the thunder of their voices. But you get that that rhythm of language um, with the King James Bible, the anaphora, the forms of repetition. And you just if you're sitting in church every Sunday and you're listening to that, it begins to seep inside of you like a sponge. But also the church was a place where, you know, I was exposed to Langston Hughes and, and the, the, the works of Black poets and, and Black writers. And again, those voices all found their way inside of my imagination. So I think, I think a church maybe to why it why church is important is it is a place in our society where we listen you sit there and you listen and i think learning to listen is also an important part of writing so yeah yeah that's really interesting too i mean just the the ability to appreciate poetry is something we kind of take for granted as poets as well but the ability to soak in language that's operating at that level 
mm-hmm. um, is something that we don't don't get very many places. And, and we used to, though, which is the thing. I, and, you know, I just it never it occurred to me like that. Um, yeah. So what we're going to do with this interview is uh, just try to move through a little more poems than we usually do, because because um, we have the whole the whole interview from rattle number 75. If anybody wants to read more, most most people have. If anybody has any follow up questions, um, just leave them in the chat windows, either on um, Facebook or uh, YouTube. And um, yeah. And so let's read the next poem. Um, I think you said Ode to the Bedpan was next. Ah. I was surprised to find out that uh, Rattle had published this one. Ode to the Bedpan. Who would ever write a poem to the bedpan? Um, But of course, if you're a nurse's aide, it's a a critical tool um, that you use. Consider the arching hips, the buttocks squeezed, thrust upward, and then pressed to that metal lip, almost sexually. Consider the bedpan. Shit bucket, night bowl, hat, its adaptable demeanor, saddled, slipper shaped, sloped, enameled, plastic, antique porcelain, disposable, yellow to match the pitcher and the plastic glass, spoon colored or blue, the fateful servant who bears away the human ordure, its stench and its dye free tissues. Feel its patience. A bedpan waits more placidly than a woman curbing her dog. Washed out, it is used again. How many buttocks and thighs has a bedpan cradled? How many beds has it sat upon? The warmth of a bedpan forgotten beneath a sleeping rump. The floor-jarring percussion of a bedpan dropped on the night shift. Consider its calm, its kindness, really, that a bedpan accepts these urging spillings, the bowels complaining and the vowel protest. It does the job assigned to it. Thigh, buttocks, hip, the hand that takes it away. Embarrassment, it's all the same. Shame, yes, but that too is easily sluiced. Nothing that anyone should keep or have to sleep with. Bedpans do not judge us. They are a measure of humility, a scoop, a shovel, a gutter, a necessary plumbing, the celebrant of hierarchy and the social order, pleased to be lifted by darker hands, paid the minimum wage. Yeah, that's a beautiful poem, Ode to the Bedpan. That's from medal number 31. And again, the hands of strangers. Um, And so this was a, a phase in your life where you, how many years was it that you worked um, I worked my way through college mm-hmm. uh, as a nurse's aide. So uh, we're talking the late 70s. And um, the that experience for uh, for me at that time was profound because I was young. My mother had worked as a nurse's aide and also my sister uh, as an aide and also a hospice um, in, in hospice care. So I had their stories to draw upon, as well as the stories of the women that I worked with. Um, but the, the, the experience of working in a nursing home, you know, I had never, even in my own family, I hadn't experienced death. I'd never gone to a funeral. And so the first deaths that I saw uh, directly uh, were in a nursing home, um, seeing what happens to the human body as it ages when you're young is, is shocking to the imagination. So all of those things um, came came to be in this book. But the, the big question for me when I was working on the book, because it, it was difficult to write 
Um, I, I was struggling with, you know, why am I writing this, what to write, what to include, what not to include. It finally, because I found uh, a diary entry, um, when I found this entry, May Ingalls died yesterday, no family, no friends, no possessions, just a room provided by the county, no pastor, no nurse, no anything, no one, no book will ever give her a sentence. And that was written in 1977. When I found that diary entry, that's when I realized what it was I was trying to do. I was trying to make a monument out of words to remember these stories. So this is May Ingalls. May Ingalls died and she died of scurvy. May Ingalls died and she died of sorrow. May Ingalls died and she died like this. Oh, 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 oh. May Ingalls died, or maybe she didn't. Tomorrow, ring bells, burn effigies of crones, declare it May Ingalls Day. Let mothers name their babies May or Ingalls. Let astrologers rename Orion's belt and call it May Ingalls Garter. Let believers see her face on mildewed wallpaper in a day's end in Biloxi. Let biologists name a newly discovered orchid, May Ingalls, or a moth, or a deep sea squid not seen since the Pliocene era. Let poets write in the form of May Ingalls, small and plain and common. May you travel with 30 other pilgrims to find her grave, but not finding it, may you open a boutique to sell May Ingalls memorabilia and sack lunches to tourists who want to lie in the county bed where May Ingalls died. May you live out your days as happy as May Ingalls. May you whisper before pressing your tongue against the slope of your beloved's neck, May Ingalls, oh, May Ingalls. May Ingalls pluck the feathers of the last Lord Godbird. She is the nude on the far right in Cezanne's Les Grands Banus. Yesterday, anthropologists discovered the image of a small woman leaping amidst a herd of antelope at Lascaux. They have called her May Ingalls. May Ingalls has seven overdue library books. Below your right kidney, the doctor will find proof of May Ingalls. Yes, you are in good health. On a playground in Alabama, black girls cl clap their hands. They've made a rhyme for May Ingalls. Oh, May Ingalls, Ingalls, looked like shingles, Ingalls. Her bones go jingle, Ingalls. Her toenails tingle, Ingalls. Your daddy made a, stole a pudding, Ingalls. He made your mama cry, Ingalls. Now they're going to hang him on the 4th of July. The water laps May and May against the shore. The earth answers and the wind and the boy swinging his toes above the dock, all with the same glad syllable, May and May and May. Afterward, the boy will snatch a fish from the dark waters. He'll split its belly and find a golden ring. Lifting the ring, he'll cry, Mangles. Some say, a small woman now stands beside death. She touches those whom death chooses. She lifts the dead from their tangled veins as if their bodies were beds 
they lay in for too long. Some say that before dying, if you whisper the woman's name, death will slow. Surprised that you remember a woman without family or monument or possession, death will slow and you will have a moment and maybe another moment more. May Ingalls, May Ingalls, May Ingalls. Yeah, that is such a beautiful poem. And and the way that you read that, um, you know, we talked a little bit about your performance um, style during the interview, but um, but just to hear and experience that poem through that, that great storytelling style, just wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing that. And such a, just a beautiful poem and a beautiful tribute to, to May Ingalls. So, um, so, so what I wanted to ask about this was, is how, how did that experience of um, working in the nursing home, um, how did that change the way you think about life and death and, and our, our, our time on this earth? I mean, like seeing people at the end of it and getting to talk to them about what they've been through and then seeing them go. I mean, I think in another poem or maybe somewhere else you mentioned how, um, you know, they just kind of disappear, like you're, you're with them for a little bit and then they come back, uh, you know, and, and they're gone. And, um, and how, did, how did that influence? I mean, it was early on. You were in college at the time. Right, right. How did that influence the way that you... Um, just think about, about your, your own life and, and the time that we have and, and how, I mean, obviously you make the most of it because you've done so much, but is that one of the things that had anything to do with it? I think what working in a nursing home did was maybe change my thinking about humanity. And when, when we think about the aged, we think of that they're wise and 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 men many 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 are, but what they are at heart are human beings, and so that whatever flaws or imperfections or perfections that we had when we were young, we have those in the nursing home as well. That 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 we are people. We are we are human through the entire arc of our lives. Um, so I I I remember. When I remember thinking to myself as a young girl, uh, as an aide, that young fools become old fools. So, and as far as death, the first one that I witnessed that I remember, there was a, a, a black man who had played in the Negro Leagues and he was dying and, and the nurses all gathered. And I remember we were all very quiet because the nurses had told us that the last sense to go was your sense of hearing. Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes think, you know, what are, go- what are the last words that I'll hear? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the thing that comes uh, that I remember, or that maybe I take away is that at the end of the life, what we want more than anything is to have people around us, and to have that sort of care, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, it, 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 uh, uh, a, a nursing home is just a wonderful microscope for finding out who we are as human beings and how, how dependent we are on each other and how much we need each other's empathy. Um, and that we're all going to be in that same position one day. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Um, should I read something from Even the Hollow? Um, yeah, sure. Why don't we do that? Um, <laughs> being a poet, I was naturally like going, 
oh, I don't want to do the poems I gave him. But, but then I realized you don't have the text for them, so I have to keep to these. Um, I'm going to read um, what there was first. And then can I read, um, I'm going to read Ash, but could I read the the Robert Hayden poem that inspired it before yeah, I read it? Yeah, read okay. whatever you want. That'd be great. Okay, okay. here's what there was. Um, and this came about because I found a quote somewhere that said we never ever see a tree. And I'm like, what do you mean we don't see trees? I see trees all the time. And it said that we see oaks, we see willows, we see sugar maples, but we don't see trees. And it just made me realize the, that, I, that I've been sort of going through the world blind. And so this poem was, okay, open your eyes. There weren't trees. So what were there? Here we go. What there was, pine, catalpa, pin oak, persimmon, but not tree. Hummingbird, hoot owl, marten, crow, but not bird. Canis, honeysuckle, coxcomb, rose, but not flower. Wood smoke, corn, dust, outhouse, but not stench. A spider spinning in a rain barrel, the silver dipper by the back porch. Tadpoles shimming against a concrete bank, but not silence. A cotton row, a bucket lowered into a well, a red dirt road, a winging crow, but not distance. A rooster crowing, cows lowing in the evening, wasp humming beneath the eaves, hounds baying, hot grease, but not music. My mother running away at 15. My grandmother lifting a truck to save a life, an uncle at Pearl Harbor, Webster sitting at the back of the bus when he looked as white as they did, but not stories. The entrails of a slaughtered sow, the child born with a goat's face, the cousin laid on a railroad track, the fire that burned it all, but not death. This poem a snuff tin sated with the hair of all our dead. My mother's nighttime talks with her dead father. My great-grandmother's clothes passed down, passed down, but not memory. And that was what there was from um, even the hollow my body made is gone, which is one of the best titles I've ever, um, I've ever come across in the book. I love that title. Um, and uh, so, so you wanted to read a Robert Hayden poem too? Mm-hmm. Um, and what is that? I'll see if I can find it online. To, to... Um, this is Those Winter Sundays. Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is the best poem in the whole wide it world. It really is. It's one of the best poems ever. Okay. Coming up from, uh, this is from the Poetry Foundation website, which is always great. Of course, they have such a great yeah. archive. Um, it's, a, it's a magnificent resource. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have it up on screen if you want to start by reading that. Those winter Sundays. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the coal splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. 
speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? So it was in response to that poem, which I've always, always loved. Um, I thought about um, my mother and myself when we were younger. And this poem is Ash. And the setting is Vernon, Alabama, 1961. I think about that winter in Vernon when it was just the two of us and cold and December sifted snow over the red dough boards of yard and roof. And you made the terrible pilgrimage each night in bare feet from bed to stove to stoke its embers and add the meager coals. Afterwards, you shivered across the linoleum, across its worn and cinder-bitten roses. Do I remember you leaping from petal to petal, your sallow feet shining like beacons? I don't know. It was long ago. But I know you climbed beneath the sheets and opening your shirt, placed my hands against your belly. We lay banked beside each other, unmoving, asleep in a house as slanted as a cant of snow. Where we were Webster's gal and her baby girl, where we waited for the colored serviceman who belonged to us until waiting was also winter, a weather we knew. How lovely we were then, the two of us, huddled in that darkness, surrounded by the dull glowing of red roses and comet cinders cast out and briefly bright. Another beautiful poem that was Ash. Um, and the thing that, that, I, that I always think of reading your poems is just the, the importance of storytelling and saving our histories and, and the way, um, um, you know, the, the way that, 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 that there's still stories, like everybody still exists. Like that's what gives meaning to everything we do is that, that they make stories and that we save stories and share stories mm-hmm. and people live as long as their stories live. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it just reminds me so much of the important role that poetry plays um, just in life. And, and you mentioned, I think somewhere that you're, I think it was in the bio of Molly that you included that you were the family's storyteller. Uh-huh. And um, can you just talk about how much, like, like what is that, that role that you feel like, like why do you feel that the need to, to share stories and save them yeah. and record them and share them with others? Those are good questions. And some of it you, you've sort of answered in, in your question, but and an African folktale that is very important to me is called the cowtail switch. And the key line of that story is that a man is never forgotten, that a man is never dead, ne- a man is never truly dead until he is forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I think I live by that. I understand that, that so the people that I that I that I love who have passed on, I've got that duty to remember. To, to, to keep them alive in some form. And, but a, an important part of it too is again, listening. My mother, whenever she would talk about her life, it was always in terms of a story. And so I, I've heard, and I'd heard many, I would hear them over and over and over again until <laughs> I had them memorized. 
And I think that was part of her plan. But anyway, so, you know, how my mother learned to drive is a story that is embedded in my DNA. And, it, you know, it, I, I will be able to pass that along to other members of the family. But I, I know that it's interest. I'm going to I'm going to sound like some old fuddy duddy right now. So you should just turn off the mic. But <laughs> save me, save me. But when I watch my and there's nothing wrong with this. When I watch my nieces and nephews, they're texting, they're texting. And I'm always struck by how difficult it is to actually pick up a phone and hear another human voice that they prefer the texting. Um, and, and so getting together where you can talk and share stories, um, those family occasions, those are just, those are vital because that's where we find our stories. That's where we hear them. And those stories that you hear over and over again, um, they really do make you who you are, right? Um, I wish I had time to tell you the story of how my mother learned to drive you, then you, you would understand a lot uh, about- I don't know, we could, we could hear it, we're in no uh, rush. No, 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 no. <laughs> but um, the, so language is important, but also I think I'm, I'm getting off, off topic here a little bit, but I had the opportunity to hear an amazing storyteller from Africa. And I'm sorry, I don't, I don't. I know Africa is a big, gigantic continent. I cannot identify the country, and I can't even. I can't even remember his name. It was years, 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 years ago. But I remember when he was telling, and it was at the national festival. So many people got up and left because he was telling at a, a slow pace, and it wasn't that you know bells and whistles and fireworks going off every five seconds and people were leaving and i i didn't leave i waited and i just kept listening and i realized what i had to change was how i was listening i had to slow myself down and listen and i think that's the other importance of stories of language and of poems a way to slow us down and make us attend to another human being and that is a skill that i think many people have lost um, and, and there's some value in getting it back again. Now that was awful. Oh gosh, I'll be drummed off the planet for sure. Okay, you're so <laughs> no, bad. No, that <laughs> wasn't awful. That was great. I'm not and, doing any more podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's great. It's wonderful. And I, I was um, j- just thinking about how you know it, it's true that that as we text more and we become more just in our own little bubble, we've lo- lost so much of what poetry gives us. It's not just. <laughs> It's not just losing church and not hearing those rhythms, but it's lose, losing family conversations and losing just that that human interaction. And and maybe you know poetry has even more value and importance as we move forward because we're having less and less of that in our regular lives. Yeah, right. The beautiful, beautiful, the beauty of language, the beauty of con- contact, the beauty of looking at some into somebody else's eyes, of of listening, and and what that means. I mean, we're 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 at our most human together, and anything that brings us together to do that is good stuff. Okay, the line is slack, um, and this is a poem. I don't think I've ever read it in any reading before, so it's it's great to get a chance to read this. Um, the line is slack. I know tonight what I've always known, remembering when she walked beside his long swing of legs before dawn, before the cast iron clatter or the rooster's stuttered roll. The two of them together in the darkness and how she, how she told it. Muslin mist rising from the cotton rose, 
the moon, a lie-washed sheet, and from the boughs of pine and pin oak, the owls lonely mourn. The two of them, these best beloved, father and daughter walking hand in hand. Her daddy, a tall yellow man, gleaming in the moonlight with weathered hat and tar-trimmed fingers, wearing overalls and good strong boots, carrying bucket and lantern, waking her to go with him down to the bottom to check the lines and lift the nets. In the chilling dark, through barnyard, under barbed wire, past the huge pasture gate and the lullaby of cows, over a log bridge, they walk together, lantern held high beside the riverbank, musky damp, and the night's psalm, bullfrogs, mosquitoes, Water giggled by the fins of fish and bump, bump, bump against the log, the breathless heaving of catfish trying to escape. She watches her daddy's big hands pull and pulling, raising the poles, reeling the line and the night's bounty. Maybe lamp eels writhing like snakes, maybe luminous bellied catfish, perch, turtle or frogs dead and dangled. Afterwards, beside the bank, her father's silence. The two of them sitting in the blue, black, quiet, waiting. Dawn flares at last like the end of a cigarette. Maybe she looks at him, her daddy, and knows that she loves him, that what he raises from dark water is not fish or eel, but some heavy part of the future when he is not there. At the end of a long line, her heart beats and hangs like a dangled bait, held out to the eternal, to the darkness, to these heavy waters, knowing that something will reach for her, that she'll be consumed. That was great. That was, uh, uh, the line is slack. And what, what book was that from? Um, that was um, even the hollow my body made ah, us. Okay, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your your style of performing a poem and and what goes into that? Because you do such a great job of delivering and, and pacing and, and putting. I think you said you're you're painting a picture on, in people's minds as you as wow. you write. Yeah. Um, and and it just it's one of the things that poets I think could, a lot of them could do better because we're and myself included. I'm terrible at doing readings like I read too fast like in my head everything is really sped up and I don't I don't go with a good pace for for the poems being received maybe because mm-hmm. they're it's the pace that's in my head instead um yes. and so what do you recommend is there some advice you could give to poets to give better readings well everybody's going to have their own style and their own voice and you want to you want to do you for me I'm all I am trying to paint a picture in the imaginations of someone who they don't see what I see, they don't know what I know. And I also know that they need time to form those pictures. And so that that guides my pacing a little bit to give people that time to think about, to think about that I'm painting scenes and what's in that scene. Also, I try to use my voice, um, not so much I'd, I'd say today, but just a little bit to show the emotional tone of what I'm reading so that they're not 
I, I try to get I try to get those emotions across with my voice. Um, so, and otherwise, I think it's it's practice. Mm-hmm. I think it's practice. Just get out there, read your poems, and I also I've always loved um, hearing words read aloud and re- um, reading words myself aloud. And I think if you come at it from that that love of hearing words, um, you'll be great. Um, so it's like when you're in church and someone's reading the words of the Bible, I think you should read that beautifully. You should, you know, you should put your whole heart and soul into it. So I think I feel the same way about a poem that um, these are the words of, you know, Emily Dickinson or Robert Hayden or Gwendolyn Brooks. And to bring the attention to them that they deserved and to show, show readers your own pleasure in those words. So I don't know if that's helpful. Um, practice, practice, practice. Yeah, I think there's a way that we don't think of um, our own voice as like a tool. Like we think of all the tools of writing and craft and things like that. But but it's a, it's a, its own medium and its mm-hmm. own um, it's its own it has its own you know systems yeah, and, and things you have to do yeah its own art form I, <laughs> I think that's what's been lost I mean as poets we all we all know the polishing and the revising and the the blood and sweat that goes into writing a poem but delivering it to an audience that is an art in and of itself and, it, and it's sort of one that we sort of we don't pay attention to um, and we should. And we and we and we should and and uh, I go out and listen to as many people uh, who are or who are delivering whether it's speeches or reading passages from books or reading poems. Watch what they do. What works? Why did it work? And try to start doing those things yourself. Mm-hmm. But um, just fall in love with words, like like poets do. Just just fall fall in love with them, but also fall in love with with um, how they how they sound. And I I think also because I use my voice to help me edit my own work um, is like one of the stages I go through that could also account for it, you know, that I'm, I'm paying attention to that. So, yeah, I think that's great advice. And, and I'm reading uh, this afternoon at the, at the poppy festival in, in Lancaster, California. So I'm going to try, I'm going to try to, to, to think of these things and use your advice. Cause it's something that I should get better at just myself and in everybody really. I mean, it's a, it's as important, especially as we move to this sort of, um, more oral and audio and visual landscape where it's really easy to do podcasts and, and live streams like we're doing right now. Um, you know, the ability to perform your poems well is something that's really worth, uh, worth, worth practicing and, and getting better at, I think. Lock yourself in the bathroom, stare at your mirror, and just read your poem to your face. That'll do it. <laughs> okay, I've got um, Primitive, um, which is about Horace H. Pippin. Should we go to that way? Yeah, Should let's go do that. Yeah. Um, well, the audience will probably want to know who the heck Horace H. Pippin was. Um, he was an artist, a black artist of the 20s and 30s. He fought in World War One. He was a war war hero. He left the war with um, a severely injured shoulder uh, for a while. He couldn't lift. Well, for all of his life, he really couldn't lift that arm higher than shoulder high. It gave him pain for his whole life. Um, he'd always loved art. He'd always drawn, even as a kid. When he came home out of the war, and the other thing that he did that's really, really significant is he left us um, our the only visual record of World War I um, drawn, painted by an African-American soldier. And so that's a key part of his biography. But when he came home, 
he's what we would re realize today is he suffered from post-traumatic stress syndrome. He suffered from, from um, depressions and blue spells. And at that, what he did was he turned again to, he first he tried to write about the war and he couldn't get the words the words out. And as a poet, I really, I understand that, that struggle with how do I say this? How do I express this? But he tried. And then finally, he discovered his voice when he began to draw pictures of the war. And um, so this book is about his life and about his art and how he became a major Black folk artist of the, the 20s, 30s. Okay, I'm going to start with I'm going to start with finding the words, because I think this is one where when I look at what I do as a poet and what he tries try to do, um, first trying to, just to write about the war, how I see that struggle that I share with him. And so I feel very sympathetic finding the words and what he's trying to do. I mean, if, if you had to describe war, what words would you use? Right. So that's what he's looking at. Finding the words. This is the war, or this is what he wrote, but meaning slips like a serpent, reptilian, every syllable a molted breath. Trees would snap off like a pipe stem. The shells would be piled up like a cord of wood. The water ran down my rifle like it would run down a ladder of a house. He tried to find words, but war is like. War is seems and as if. A hard language, apt his broken syntax, apt his errant spelling. It were in pieces and you could not make them out. There were two men in it and they looked like mush. I could hear them shells bursting back of me and they would sound like thunder. Soldiers, black men, lowly things, belly walkers, creepers. We would stick to the shell hole like a serpent, serpents without hands to stall their movement onward, without fingers to petition, tighten into fist or count the buddies gone, lost, left to rot. I could not do anything, he said. Word, serpents, their constricting friction in the throat their cruel venom. So when I was reading his war diaries, which you can find online um, through the Smithsonian Institute, so you can read what he tried to write when he got back from the war. And so it, it has his misspellings because he had a very broken education. Um, but I, I was impressed by the similes that he came up with. You know, the tree snapping like a pipe stem. And it was interesting to me, what, what did he do to try to ex describe this thing that nobody had any knowledge of is how he went back to his own ordinary daily life, right? Um, water ran down my rifle like it would run down the ladder of a house. And so that I'm, I'm struck by the fact that when we see the world, no matter what, we sort of we have to dig into our own lives and our own memories to, to understand it and explain it. So I like that. That's, that's what that poem was about. Um, I thought I would read two poems that when people read the book, um, there's two poems that people often um, bring up to me as ones that they like. And this one's The Subtlety of Blue. Um, there was a, 
critic at the time who wrote, who said of, of Pippin's work, his work isn't subtle. For instance, blues for the sky came right out of the tube, maybe with a little white mixed in, Dave Mueller. Perhaps he understood having lived between poles of black and white, light crude delineations. This is blue, this is yellow. Perhaps the taxonomies of color hardly matter. The sky is blue or blue as a dinner plate or blue as a blue gummed girl, corpse blue, gas blue, azure, cerulean, cobalt, Prussian, Mrs. Stewart's bluing or the blues. A man feels when he's aching and solo, solo. Or blue with a little white mixed in to temper the blue and make it like solitude or separation, blue but not perfect. Perhaps imperfections did not matter to him. Given a length of light, the eye being fond of perfidy will say whatever you wish. Maybe he wanted the viewer uncertain or wanted to make his viewer ponder sky. A black man alters a white canvas. He paints vapor trails, clouds, vastness. And this is the point. He uses any damn color he chooses. Yeah, another great poem, The Subtlety of Blue, and that's from uh, from Primitive. And uh, and there it is on screen, yeah. And, and so... Um, and that's the the concept, the title behind the book is because his paintings were called primitive and it kind of, yeah, right. you know, and a really a racist kind of way of looking at them of, of saying, oh, he's a primitive painter. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it? I think, I don't know if we talked about this, but what was it that drew you to uh, write this book? Uh, was it, um, did you discover his paintings in some way where was there a time where you're like, oh, I have to write a book about this? Um, when I was a librarian, I worked with a local um, elementary school art teacher, we created kits to be used in classrooms that um, would help teachers uh, teach about and help students learn about black artists. So one of the kits that we put together was on Horace Pippin. And that's where I first saw his art. And when you see it in a book, I mean, it's impressive in a book, but it wasn't until I had a chance to actually go to an art museum and there's um, many galleries in Washington, D.C. that have his work. And when you see them face to face, oh, my goodness, they're 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 little jewels. They're just amazing. And so that's how that's how I first um, encountered him. And then poets began. Uh, I think probably I saw this a lot in the 90s. A lot of poets were writing poetry books that were centered around the life of one person. I'm thinking about uh, Tehimba Jess's um, Lead Belly, for example, or Adrian Mateka's Smoke. So I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I'd like to give that a try. So I I picked um, Horace Pippin. And and his life is so fascinating, for me anyway, because here was a human being who had every reason not to make art, right? He's poor, he didn't have a college education, he lived at a time of of rabid racism, Uh, he lived in a small town, it just, the list goes on and on and on, you know, he's disabled, all these reasons why he could have said, no, I can't be an artist, but he said yes, and I'm, 
I take, I listen to that. And I listen to how often when I'm talking to people, I hear people saying, no, I can't, I can't this, I can't that. And um, I think he, he is a model for saying yes and, and, and taking the skills, the talents you have and using them to help people look at the world differently or experience the world differently. The other thing that fascinates me about him, when you go to, he, so he was self, a self-taught artist and artists who are self-taught will frequently, they look at the world a little differently. So with his paintings, the background is just as important as the foreground. And so one thing that resulted as a result of studying Pippin is that I pay close attention to backgrounds now. So I went back to my family album and instead of just looking at, you know, what we took a picture of, I looked in the background and there was a picture, an early picture of my mother and very small, very small, very small, way back in the trees was me. I didn't even know that. Right. So, so I, I've become very strange when I go to art museums now, cause I'm not quite looking at the same things that other people do. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely did. Um, I think we have time for probably two more poems. Do you want to do, you wanna do um, the 1939 and then um, the, the one from Rattle to, to close it out? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, from the newest issue, The Flight. Um, hmm. the title. You know, I don't want to miss it. So what if I start with, what if I do Connecting Flights? Because it's sure. in section. And, you know, if you run out of time, I'd rather oh, there's cut no, the There's no time. Uh, there's no time limit. So we could just do both. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Then we shall do what logically follows. Uh, <laughs> we will do 1939. And this again is um, from Primitive. And when I was doing, um, a lot, there's a lot of ekphrastic poems, poems that are, are looking at paintings in the book because he was an artist. And what I wanted to do, um, Bridget Kelly, who a, was a magnificent poet, said that in an ekphrastic poem, it's got to do more than just reproduce the painting. So one of the things I tried to do when I was looking at his art was to say not only, well, what's going on in that picture, but for this particular poem, I wanted to think about what was going on when he painted it, what was happening in the world. So this is um, 1939. It, it's also, it has two titles. Uh, sometimes it's called The Getaway, 1939, and sometimes The Fox, The Getaway. And I have to paint a picture in your head before I can read the poem. Um, so I, I need you to picture a winter landscape, the sky is dark, the clouds are like purpley bruisey, the, the, sky, the sky is like purpley bruisey color and the clouds are, are, are white, you know, with the sort of dark edges around them, sort of like a, a Georgia O'Keeffe if you can imagine her clouds. And then there's a field of snow with a creek running through it jaggedly. And there's a fox running beside the creek and he's got um, a chicken, a hen dangling from its mouth, all right? Try to ignore the connections between the invasion of Poland, a sorceress crushed beside the curb of a yellow brick road, and a 1939 painting by a Negro folk artist of an escaping fox. Fox as sneak thief, spirit animal, shapeshifter, ambassador of ghost. Fox as sign how death steals and steals away. Dark sky and torn clouds, the snow, the axe-colored creek. Oh, Br'er Fox and Massa's best setting hen pinched tight between pointy teeth. 
A little something, something the fox thinks he is righteously owed and has artfully gained with stealth, as history is ultimately a chronology of grand larcenies and petty thefts, the bones of prey animals picked clean by Kit and Vixen. History is the fox. But art, too, is theft. Mark the rapacious brush pointed like a fox's tail. Mark the rapacious eye, vision's feral skittishness. Mark the rapacious canvas like the hen house after the fox has left. Lift a brush, snatch the unwary eye, alter borders for Lebensraum, and you'll be his, you'll be his, you'll be history. A watercolor painted by Adolf Hitler is auctioned for less than Dorothy's ruby slippers. After all, a pair of ruby slippers could be enchanted kits, fox spirits bearing missives from the dead, or exhibit items stolen from a display of several thousand little shoes in a Polish concentration lager. A pair of ruby slippers could be the ears in the, of the fox in Pippin's The Getaway. History is a tale of shape-shifting and unlikely connections, or art is the fleeing fox and history dangles from its mouth. That was uh, 1939. I just love that ending, um, that art is the fleeing fox and history dangles from its mouth. Um, yeah. And I, I was a little slow on the uh, draw, but I got the, the painting up. So if uh, people who are watching and not just listening can see the, the fox with running away from the hen house here from the uh, Pippin painting, courtesy of... Um, uh, Horace Pippin. Well, it's yeah. Horace Pippin, but it's, it's, it's posted in Fine Art America. I just want to tell oh. the source where I'm getting from. You can buy a print for 13.95 apparently. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um so before you read the last poem, can you just talk a little bit about about that last line and what what art is? And cuz I was thinking like looking at Pippin's paintings and then reading your poems makes me think a lot about like what art is doing and what they have in common even though they're totally different mediums. So what do you think like the function of art is if you can a- answer such a broad big question like that? Oh. Such a small, tiny question <laughs> on a Sunday. Okay, um, I, I it, it's something I always think about. I'm always thinking about who's going to win. <laughs> History and all the horrible, rotten, miserable, terrible things that human beings do to each other, or art. I'm always and I'm always thinking like, is art enough when the world's falling apart around you? Should you be writing poetry? I mean, so I'm always I'm always like tearing myself apart over that that problem. And I guess my answer to it is to think that art is important, that it keeps us alive, keeps our spirits alive, gives us hope that if, if, if the only thing I've done with my small, tiny, insignificant little life is, is write a poem that maybe made somebody else pay attention, or maybe change someone's thinking about something that that's not a small thing that that's not that's not a bad thing to have done done with a life but i also want to think that nah art's gonna win (laughs) (laughs) and i think it will i think despite all these horrible wretched things that people do i think that i think that artists and art redeem us will save us in the end i think 
I think so. Yeah. Tomorrow I may yeah. be different, but I, I think so. Yeah, that's a wonderful answer to a very tough question. So I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. And and I never had, you know, I hadn't really thought about art as being opposed to history on a kind of, you know, as a polarity like that. But that that's really fascinating about what what actually happens and the and the power of imagination, what we can create too. Yeah. Here I'm I'm saying all of these really silly things, and I, I and I'm never going to forgive you for this. this <laughs> Never, 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 never. No, th- this is wonderful. I mean, this is why I do. I love just being able to talk to a poet every Sunday. It's it's wonderful, and and you've said so many great things. Um, I, I loved it. <laughs> you ask me simple questions. Uh, huh? Well, what's your favorite color? <laughs> oh, maroon. I like maroon. Yeah, maroon's pretty cool. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. Let's, yeah, let's finish up with connecting flights. Here we go. Um, this poem is in sections. Number one. A skinny, pony-leg thing in canvas shoes and pigtails. She skips into the yard, then runs to jump, jump, and skyward wave. Her baby brother does the same. She taught him a childhood game on Alabama's red sand and yellow clay. They wave at silver wings, at silver bellies, at the people in the silver bodies whom they can't see. They wave to the passenger, passenger they imagine who must even now look down on them. Goodbye, daddy, they shout. Goodbye to their father who is always leaving. And every plane or contrail is their father's flight and a chance to say bye-bye, bye-bye. A chance that he will see them and come back Two. A few years later in Nebraska then, at Pioneer Park, a Negro family flying box kites circa 1964-65. The children hold cotton strings and run, run downhill, trying to launch frail paper into flight. But they are poor engines, poor lures for fickle winds, poor practitioners of a difficult art made from balsa and paper and pushing through air with brown bodies as fast, fast as they could go so that maybe, maybe a brief lift, a shudder till something unseen snatches up their tender offering, a strength that pulls the cotton taut briefly, briefly before their minds can think it's flying or higher or take us with with you. Then let's go. But there was something in those plummets and ceaseless falls, in their disappointment, their fathers trying, trying, so that they never went back to fly kites again. But maybe the story airs, or memory, though its strings are so tightly held, turns, spins, and always falls. Three. Years later, she looks out a small window into the kingdom of clouds, bulwarks, fortresses, palaces of vapor. She imagines walking over the cloudscape, the still, the cold, the press of wind. In Alabama, they are laying him down, her father, digging his grave in red sand and yellow clay. She didn't go back. But she imagines now his heart's rupture, his body falling. Turbulence, the pilot says. 
If the cabin pressure drops, apply your own mask first, and then the safety bulletin reads. In Detroit, she reboards. The plane takes the runway, rises, banks into flight. She wonders how they return the body. Thinks of her father in his coffin box. On the way to Philly, she sits in the belly of a silver plane by a narrow window, looking down, looking back. From that height, the world reshapes itself. Green squares, brown squares, the threads of rivers, grids of roads. She knows he never saw them waving, flinging their bodies up, up as high as they could, trying every time to reach him. Yeah, just wonderful poem again. Janice Harrington, thanks so much for being a guest. Um, love your work. Love talking to you. It, it was really wonderful. Um, and so glad for, that you could take the time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we are uh, going to go to a quick break and then do the open lines. Uh, but once again, that was Janice Harrington. And her uh, website is JaniceHarrington.com if you want to check out these books. The ones we were looking at um, were um, you know, all three of her books. Um um, she was reading from Even the Hollow My Body Made is Gone, which is the one that won the A. Pollen Jr. Poetry Prize from Bo Editions and the K. Tufts Discovery Award. Um, then her second book of poetry is that The Hands of Strangers about working in the nursing home. And then the last book, which I, I just love. I love a biography through poetry. Um, it's such a cool way to do it. And, and it's just great to see, amazing to see uh, someone's whole life and such an interesting life told that way. Um, and that was uh, the book Primitive, The Art and Life of Horace H. Pippin. Um, so check all of those out at JaniceHarrington.com. Without the end, JaniceHarrington.com. Okay, so we are going to put up the... Um, we're going to put up the Zoom link, and then we'll open up the open lines and see what everyone has to share today. The Zoom links are deployed, so join me on Zoom. And um, I'm going to put up a little bit of music, and I will be right back in just a moment. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. It's going to be a bit of a short show tonight, or today, I should say, this morning. I do have to leave at, um, um, at the 2 hours 15 mark this week. So, um, and we're going to go to about the end of the hour. So we have about 45 minutes, and then, um, and then Christine Potter is going to be here to close out the show, today's poet, um, with that wonderfully moving poem. Um, um, what, was today's, what was it called? It was called, um, oh yeah, I Want to Love the World. That was today's poem with Christine Potter. We'll have her um, at the, I guess you'd say the top of the hour. Uh, but until then, we have open lines. And let's start with a first-time um, caller. Quinn Bailey is here. Hey, Quinn. Hey Tim, nice to see you. Yeah, great to see you. So, uh, where are you calling from? It's a, uh, it's nice to have a first time caller on first. Uh, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Seattle, Washington. Uh, very cool. And I have um, um, the otters one night here. Yes. Um, is, uh, is there anything you want to say about uh, about the poem before you read it? Um, this is a poem. It's not from the prompt, but it 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 actually sprung from an experience during like early on in the pandemic. I was. I moved back home to a little island that I lived on and everything was shut down. And it was just amazing how the animals were coming out. Like there was no boats on the water, no nothing. And I would just go down and see these otters every day. So kind of came out of that experience. Yeah, it was interesting how that happened here. There were, um, in, in our small town up in the woods, there was, uh, the, the rabbits just exploded. There were so many rabbits that year. 
and and I don't even know there there was no difference. So like everybody still lives here, and we there's no like there's not especially in the summer and spring when it's not ski season. There's no influx of tourists or anything that was like like nothing seemed like it was different. But the rabbits were just they changed. Yeah, yeah so they knew somehow yeah. that it was a little more safe to come out. I guess I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's a little it's. It's inspiring to see how quickly the natural world can come back if we just give it a little space. Yeah, for sure. Doesn't take doesn't take much much time at all. Um, no. Okay, so the otters one okay. night. Go ahead uh, whenever yep. you're ready. Put it on screen for everybody uh, at home. Thanks. The otters one night. They came from the salty purr of the ocean, like slick eel dreams. A mother and two pups moving up the shaggy rocks to drink from the stream that lopes here down the mountain to meet them. Three whiskered chins resting together on the smooth pebbles, their rough tongues like dogs greedily lapping away the stiffness of salt. To look away is to lose them. And of course I do when at the mother's single soft bark, they sidle back down the gray scales of night and into the water, like oil meeting oil, like dark furry needles piercing again the salt black ocean of fabric. We may meet someday, you and I, and we may even talk about things that matter and let our masks slip a little. But who I am really is still on that dock, watching those tender dreams slide into the shining water. Oh, that was great. I love the image of the the otters one night. Uh, beautiful poem. Thanks so much for sharing that and joining us. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, take care. Let's go to uh, let's go to Nivedita. Hello. Hey, Nivi, how you doing? Hey, Tim. I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm yeah, I'm doing great. It's good to see you. It's been a little bit. Hi. Yes, last week the timing was a bit off for me. It was sort of two thirty a.m. in the morning. So. Oh yeah, that that really wouldn't work, would it? <laughs> <laughs> um. So, what do you have that you would like to share? Um, the prompt poem, as always. And uh, this is the, the, um, the everyman archetype. Uh-huh. The everyman or woman archetype, as the case may be. It's interesting because um, I was looking at these archetypes, and the first thing that pops up, at least on my Google, is um, is uh, the archetypes, which brand is each, like, which archetype is each brand. I don't know if you happen to see that link. Thank you. I know that's the first one that popped up for me as well when I did that. I, I'm not kidding. Yes, you're right. That's the first one. That it comes. is. It's strange. So we don't even think about the psychology or anything else. We just think of you know what is used for marketing. But I was thinking though yeah. that, that this was probably the rattles archetype. It would be the everyman. Um, so I think that fits. And and what other brands were the everyman? I can't remember. But it, but it, it made sense. Um, like you know, like <laughs> yeah, like some were the hero, and some were the mother, and you some know. Some are creators, and we're just we're normal people, and proud to be like everybody understands us, and that's 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 good. That's what we strive for. So. Yeah, yeah, sounds I, about right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's hear this uh, the Jungian archetype poem. Yes, so I mean, here each word actually the first letter spell out ordinary in the entire poem. Just just putting oh, yeah. that out there for. Uh huh. So, every man, woman, oppressed repressed, depressed, we are not. In this tale, we are not the helpless, not the aloof, miserable, emotionally charged ones. Resolute, we still shoulder these titles and carry on as we've done 
for years, still going strong, unbothered by the lot tossed to us by life. Excellent. Yeah, great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was the Every Man Woman um, <laughs> by Nividia Karthik. Thanks, Nividia. It's great talking to you. Have a great day. Yep, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, yeah, that was Nivy. And um, admit, admit the rest of the people here. So we have uh, lined up. We got Dick Westheimer's here and uh, T.R. Powelson, Andrew Tredinick, Jen Wang. Looking good. Okay. So let's go next to, let's go to Richard Westheimer. We've had him at the beginning and the end. Let's have him kind of in the middle. <laughs> hey, hey, Tim. Yeah. Hey, Dick. How you doing? Good. Uh, that was that was a great reading. Um, I'm just uh, just some fab, fabulous images and poems. And, and the opening poem um, for Tuesday was fabulous. Can't wait. Can't wait to see it in print. Yeah, I, I just love. I mean, Janice Harrington is so. I was trying to think of which which of those books is my favorite, and I couldn't even pick. Like, I, I I like them all for. I mean, they're just such great storytelling, and they all have something they're about too, which is makes really great reading experience. Uh, I love the primitive book, especially. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, good stuff. Uh, one or two today. Uh, we I think we let's see. We have about ten people. Let's just stick to one because I I do have to leave a little early. So, which one would you prefer? Um, I'll do my. Um, I'll take a take a chance on a one I knocked off this morning with the uh, archetype poem. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So um, I I didn't know where it was going, and I didn't actually start off with an archetype in mind, but it made me think of this experience I had with my friend, um, which you'll see later on in the poem. And then I just started throwing in other archetypes as the, as the poem went on and then titled it The Orphan Archetype. Ralphie was a bit old to be called Ralphie, but I'd known him since his mom was alive when he and I were little boys. And though I felt sorry for him back when she died, he was still Ralphie. And so long as we got to play, I was okay. But his mom, Francie, and my mom were best friends, so we fell away since his dad, Jimmy, was one of those quiet guys who only socialized when his wife did, and she was dead, so no one noticed when he started drinking himself to sleep, drinking himself awake, nobody but Ralphie, because his big sister was already gone, and it was just him and his dad. Ralphie came back from college to take care of the old man after Jimmy got caught drunk in the operating room. A patient almost died. Ralphie and me hung out just once before they lost the house. But we had a good time sitting around downstairs while his dad sloshed in front of the test pattern upstairs. Ralphie told me about how much he loved psych classes from this hippie prof at college who smoked weed with his students, and when he got really stoned, would consign them an archetype, said his were an improvement on Jung, labeled Ralphie a sensual, sensualist type, because when he sat, he fold up all fetal-like with his clasped hands tucked between his legs. I sat like that and asked if I might be a centralist too, because I wanted to be something with a real label. And Ralphie said I could, and it wasn't until years later that I knew Ralphie sat like that because he was so cold and lost, like it was his fault his dad slid away, and that fucking hippie prof playing the sage just led him on. Maybe, 
uh, was making a move on him, maybe even was making a move on him. And all I wish now is that I could have been the hero, could have cared, could have been the wizard who brought Francie back to life. But there is no archetype for the oblivious. And Ralphie is far away, and I hope he is not alone. Oh, really touching poem. And there is no archetype for the oblivious. What a great line there. Um, thanks, as always, Dick, for sharing that. That was wonderful. Thanks, Tim. Um, let's go to um, let's go to Jennifer Elise Wang. Um, hey. Hey. Oh, and by the way, when I say 11, I, I'm talking my time. So <laughs> yeah. It gets very confusing. The, the top of the hour. The top of the hour. That's why you have to say it that way. Um, but but yeah, so so hi. How you doing, Jen? Uh, I'm good. And um, I, I debated on what to share because I had a different archetype and I also had a poet's respond. But then um, I was watching Bridgerton last night. Oh, yeah. and This got inspired. And then you mentioned the artist as the first one. So I was like, oh, maybe I could like start writing something for each of the archetypes. So uh, this current one, the artist is inspired by both Bridgerton and my own kind of struggles with imposter syndrome. So yeah, interesting. let's go ahead here. I'll put it up. All right. The artist. I stare at the blank canvas. I have so many ideas racing through my mind, but none worthy of transference. Are they even my own or just copycats of what I consume? Maybe they're the side effects of mental illness or drugs. I think of my former peers who had gone on to other things, career, family, happiness. And I think of my current peers who probably see me for the fraud I am in this pursuit of a dream that's more like chasing a dragon, a temporary high that comes crashing down and gives me nothing in the end, like the blank space before me. Only my hands have started moving and I let everything go until what's before me, valuable or not, polished or rough, is complete and my own. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, a great poem. That was uh, The Artist by Jennifer Elise Wang. I um, always appreciate it. hope you have a good day and, and join again soon. Okay. Yeah, The Artist. And um, I, I was li- listening to um, or rereading some Jung, and I was thinking how much, I was wondering how much, how different it would be if, um, if he was alive today and had the, uh, the computer programming as a metaphor. Because I think a lot of it is uh, a lot of it is uh, very similar to programming, is what he meant by archetypes. But he didn't have that kind of computer language. Um, I was just letting some more people in. Let's go to uh, Andrew Tradinic. Hi, Tim. Good morning, Andrew. How are you doing? Uh, good. Uh, I think you had to push uh, your video just, button if you want. Yeah, just getting the right buttons here. Okay. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Um, uh, the the archetypes um i've uh i yeah i I was a bit inspired by uh joni mitchell she mentions coyote in one of her songs Mm -hmm. and um and coyote i think is kind of like the trickster uh archetype and um uh, from from native american traditions and so on but um yeah so there was that and and i was fascinated by uh people thinking about the shadow side of of archetypes as well and and trying to get a little bit away from the marketing angle because I, I recognize the marketers have latched onto this one too you know <laughs> so um um yeah so uh the, the the trickster and the empty suit uh, the empty suit will be familiar to people anyone who's worked in an organization 
um, of any kind. Actually, fortunately, um, I haven't, so I, I don't have to know, <laughs> know what that is. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll um, I'll read it, and I was a bit inspired by Dilbert to the um, Scott Adams's um, cartoon character, the manager in Dilbert. He's a bit of an empty suit, so um, <clears throat> I'll I'll read it anyway. The trickster and the empty suit. No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstance, uh, said Joni Mitchell. I sense a coldness to your mentoring, uh, said uh, Dilbert, perhaps of his boss. The trickster and the empty suit are archetypes, metaphors, or are they personas, masks? The trickster gets under the skin of the empty suit. Look, we're bound to mix our metaphors when the subject is metaphorical. The empty suit seems to be the shadow of the ruler or of the magician when he's lost his wand. So the empty suit thinks he's the boss and wants to mentor. But he has, well, literally no idea, confusing the shadow for the real. The trickster, by contrast, only has ideas. They try to work on it. The suit goes to see HR. Q, trickster, exit, stage left. No regrets, Coyote? <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Thanks so much for sharing that, Andrew. The okay. trickster in the empty suit, yeah. <laughs> Take Thanks, Tim. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead to another first-time caller, um, Ethne. Hi. Hey, how you doing? How are you doing? Yeah, thank you very much um, for, for having me. Um, it's Ethna. Ethna, sorry, I was guessing. That's all right. That's all right. It's, um, I, I live in um, North Yorkshire in England, but I was born and brought up in Northern Ireland. Ah. And I am an aspiring poet um, and have found that your website and um, the YouTube channel relatively recently. And I just... I've just been enthralled to it. I love the critique of the week. I love these sessions. Um, so, yes, yeah, great to be able to um, engage with you live, so to speak. Yeah, um, well, so I'm thank so, you. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that and so glad you could join us. Uh, what, what did you want to share? So I've just been working on this poem just over this weekend. Um, I'm not sure it meets the prompt, although there is a, a theme of innocence um, running through. It's called on leaving Belfast. Okay. On leaving Belfast. There must be thousands of us safely fledged and flitted for years now, boring friends with the same Pavlovian reaction to humdrum events. Entering a restaurant, theatre or bar, we take time to choose the best seat in the house. We make sure there are no pillars or plants blocking our line of sight to the front door. We sit over there with backs to the wall and close to an emergency exit. Once elastic brains cracked with age are stuck in a hysterical loop of heated awareness of men, women, children who cheered football in the pub, bought fish and chips for lunch, place bets in the bookies and blameless but destroyed never made it home again to their 
precious humdrum lives. Oh, wonderful poem. Very touching ending. I love that. Um, and that was uh, I'm Leaving Belfast again. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining and sharing that. Thank you, Tim. Yep, take care. And I hope you can join and share again soon. Thank you. Okay, and um, let's go next to uh, Don Bud. Another first time, a bunch of first time callers this week. Are you there, Don? Yeah, I can't hear you right now. I'm not picking up any audio. Let's go to, um, yeah, we'll try to come back to Don later. Sorry, Don. And um, we'll go to TR Paulson. TR is right here. You flashed on the screen for a second anyway. Hey, TR. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. How are you doing? Good. It's so much smoother with Zoom. I know I always say that, but yeah, it it is. I um, you know, the the thing is, the audio, the video quality and sound quality aren't as high, which is one of the reasons why I picked Skype originally. But it, the transitions are much easier with Zoom, so it's true. And we're about poems, not how our mascara looks anyway, right? <laughs> it's it's very true, as you can see by the way I present myself. Um, so this is a poem you have this week is from uh, solstice magazine. Um, a magazine yeah, had you heard of it sources. before? I haven't. No, cause I'm really out of the loop. I don't, I don't know anything about what's out there. Um, so that's why I love it when people share a link to a, a new website. So I'll put it up on screen here. This is, um, solstice magazine and, um, the website, there's the title. The uh, website is just solstice Do you know how, what do you know about this magazine? TR? Well, I just stumbled upon it and I, you know, I mean, you have to submit at least a hundred poems for rejection for every one you get accepted. So I'm very aggressive about researching journals and I don't even remember how I discovered it, but I read through it and I liked the poetry and clearly it was a match because they chose one of mine. So it was a win-win. Very cool. And this is Um, Wedding Portrait, which was in the spring 2022 issue. So um, yeah, so it just came out like a week ago. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Is there anything you want to say about the poem before you read it? Um, I I was surprised it even ever found a home. I it got a lot of mixed reviews in workshop. Hmm. Um, it's one where I'm intentionally experimenting with cliches, and it's hard to. That's a hard subject matter to deal with because it's really easy. I'm sh- I'm sure you run a lot across a lot of cliches. Hmm. So, you know, to, there's a fine line between using the cliches intentionally with the intent of finding surprise in mm-hmm. them, versus having them just be cliches. Yeah, and there's also so, just some topics that workshops aren't really the best at. Like sometimes a regular audience is better at judging than uh, people looking to tinker because they're always, you know, there's a weird way in a workshop you're looking for something to say. And so instead of it, it shifts the way you're reading, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, so yeah, and I got a lot, some good comments when I posted it on my um, social media. So that's why we have poetry to yeah. find connection. So um, it's a sonnet, um, just a regular Shakespearean. Or no, yeah, it's a Shakespearean. Forgot my own form. (laughs) Um, Wedding portrait. The vows hover like smoke and glitter, his mind cliched with memory. Faces, hands, and smoke of New Year's night. His search for empty. His find was her. They ran on beaches, talked and joked as in a novel. First kiss taken, thunder and lightning. Roses, whole nine yards. Six flags. The sky coaster. He never stopped to wonder if she loved him. And now behind her shag of lace, wisdom replays. But he's so smitten. Free falling, she had darked to the nothing, born by wind. In childhood, she had reached for kittens in wild rose bushes where the thorns had torn her, like the panic of forgotten lines in plays. She puts her hand out for the ring. 
Uh, that, that's great. I think the cliches do work well. I think uh, there's a way that it fits the subject matter. And um, there's a way that, it, too, if you use a lot of them, you're, you're sort of waiting for the next one and seeing how you can fit them into the form as well. It's, it's fun. I think it worked. Yeah, the, the, it wasn't working until I put it in form. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it clicked. Yeah, very cool. Well, thanks so much for that. It was Wedding Portrait yeah. again from Sol- Solstice. I think I might have said Solace. Solstice Mag. L-S-O-L-S-T-I-C-E. Lit Mag. Man, I did a bad job of saying the, <laughs> saying the URL. SolsticeLitMag.org. SolsticeLitMag.org. Thanks, yeah, thanks it's again, It's a little bit of a test on Twitter. It kind of is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, um, to you. But Always thanks for another great broadcast. Love it, as usual. Um, yeah. Love the poem for Tuesday. Very cool. Thanks. Talk to you later. Okay, let me see if there's uh, some more people to admit as well. Okay, so let's go. Um, let's go to Patricia McMillan next. Okay. Hey, Patricia, how are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a great way to start my Sunday. Very it busy is. Sunday for me too. News. Let's see. Um, so I did a poem on the prompt. I actually studied Jung in college many, many years ago, and I had, but I had never heard of the twelve archetypes. Oh, really? Interesting. Yes. So I started out by doing my usual internet research, and here's what I got: the artist. According to the online Jungian archetype test I took yesterday, myself is seventy-two percent, my persona seventy-four percent magician almost as far from artist as anyone can get with hero and joker right behind. Naturally, I am unhappy with this result. So today I took another Jungian archetype test, scoring 30 for seeker, 28 each for orphan and magician on a different site that offered a free link to Jung's Labyrinth, a PC game that sounds scary, and another to Dao time, a tool to speed up the Jungian individuation process, also scary and probably too late. Then I took a nap to integrate all of this raw knowledge and woke hungry for even more. So I read an online article about using Jungian archetypes to brand products. Apparently we all found this. Yeah, I think so. This links me to Apple, Disney, and Absolute Vodka on my magician side, Jeep, Red Bull, and REI on my seeker side, and then got sidetracked for a good hour checking my DNA results, reading about my Chinese dragon and non-Chinese crab zodiac signs, Checking the numerology of my name matches that of Jesus. Throwing online Ching coins and selecting six online tarot cards for free personalized readings, which respectively advised me to seek win-win solutions, go to meet something, and change direction. After another nap, I'll see it's possible that I'm all of the above and maybe another thing or two, too. That's great. Thanks so much for that. It's Patricia McMillan with... Uh... Um, the the artist and I'm gonna have to look up like look into what they're doing with uh, SEO on that website that makes that the first thing that pops up for everybody the uh, the articles about about archetypes as brands they're doing something right <laughs> because it, you know we got I got to figure out their secret uh, but thanks for sharing that for sure that was great um, let's go let's try Don Bud again and see if we can get some audio this time hey Don is uh, do you have any uh, sound uh, we're still not getting any sound out of you. Um, let's see. Looks like she's trying to plug something in. Yeah, we're not getting anything. Um, if, if we don't, maybe we'll try one last time toward the end if you can figure out. Yeah, we'll swing back to you one more time. If not, I can just read your poem. 
I'll make sure since you're here, I'll make sure that we get to share it. Um, I, I have it right here in the email. Hello, hello, hello. Oh, we have it. Hello, Don. It worked this time. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Yay. Hello. Hi. Hi. So how are you doing? And where are you calling from? I think you're a oh. first time caller too, right? I, yes, I am. I am a first time caller. Long time listener. Um, I've been here since the beginning of the pandemic, but I have never gotten the guts to call. So I'm very excited to speak with you. I'm from Lima, Ohio, mm-hmm. Northwest Ohio. Um, shout out to Toledo scene. Um, and I'm, I love you. I love all of you. I love this entire entire thing and i'm excited to get to recite my poem awesome so. thanks so much yeah i'm so glad you could be here so you have cobweb Thank poem. You. yes and is there anything you want to say to introduce it or do you want to jump right in context i was at writing group and the prompt was cowboy poem interesting i'm hard of hearing and uh i heard cobweb poem so this was my very first poem that i ever memorized and it is kind of my signature piece. Oh, great. It, well, it really matches with the archetype theme this this, this week, and I'm very excited. So. Perfect. Looking forward to hearing it. Go ahead, whenever you're ready. Pleasure. Weaver of reality. Carve that dimension out of wide open space. Sling body forward. Snatch a bit of angle. Fall gracefully free until you stop. Roped and gathered. Twisting in the wind, fall, guttered by gravity, gravitas, you fall, rattle brain and assess, simple weaver, take your time, find the exact point of connection, strongest there, brace it there, know the winds rail and rake, harsh, rain can batter and scatter all your good work, get up again, work again, draw from yourself your own reality. Draw a dimension I can see. Draw it all together, woven tight. Bring us home through this inky night. Earthmaker, weaver of reality. Oh, that was a great poem and great performance of it, too. Speaking of uh, of how to go about performing a poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Don. You can like join us. Um, okay. And next up, we're going to go to uh, Bev Wendell Atherstone. Hi, Tim. Hey, Bev. How are you doing today? Great. What a wonderful program today. I loved that interview. That was fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Janice is just the best. I, I've loved her work for so long. I was so glad uh, that she submitted to the Librarian Poets issue. I didn't realize she was a librarian. Um, and then uh, I was like, well, we got to interview you. <laughs> so uh, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> so what do you have that you'd like to share and, and write about? Okay, so today I tried a pantoon, my very first one. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tough. It's tough, but interesting of the way it weaves itself to the end. Yeah, it really is. And this is about the Moskva, the um, the the crew of the yes. Moskva's, the title. That's the the ship that sank, or it's a missile hit it or something. It's one of the the battleship for the Russian Navy. The Ukrainian a Ukrainian missile sunk the Moskva, and uh, of course Russia is saying that. Uh, it no, it must have been a fire on board, and la la la. And the families, the family of the missing sailors, are, want want to have the truth about where their uh, relatives are. So this is my uh, this is my poem. <laughs> the the crew of the Moskva, disbelieving sailors, listen as the stealthy missile nears. Its nose cone in the sunlight glistens. 
collision as the firestorm appears. As the stealthy missile nears, the Moskva rides proudly high. Collision as the firestorm appears. The sailors search anxiously the sky. The Moskva rides proudly high before she slides in darkness down. The sailors search anxiously the sky, unknowing this their day to drown. Before she slides in darkness down, the flagship gapes in demolition, unknowing this their day to drown. Disbelieving sailors listen. Oh, that was great. Love the rhyme there and the form of the pantoum. Thanks for sharing that, Bev. That was great. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Okay, yeah, that was Bev Wendell Atherstone with the crew of the Moskva. And um, let me see. So I think that probably looks like that's everybody. Let's go to um, Christine Potter now. Um, Christine is uh, the poet from today, this wonderful poem. Um, here she is, Christine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hi. Hey, how are you doing? Okay. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Sitting here, uh, this typical Zoom meeting. My cat just uh, fur bombed me. Yeah. <laughs> now well, it's the... a real Zoom meeting. Yeah. yeah the fur bomb. I hadn't. Uh, I hadn't heard that expression before. That's. Uh, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's in my eyes. <laughs> Um, and actually, is that um, is that the same Molly cat who has a poem in rattle? Um, Molly uh, is not with us anymore. Mm. This is this is Molly's replacement, as uh. it were. Uh, Bella, who is also uh, she's a desk wump. She hangs out with me while I write. Yeah. Uh, um, she she doesn't really have a poetic voice yet. She might try. You know. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it if she does. I think maybe after we'll we'll play the Molly Cat poem after we talk about today's. Um, but this poem, the the poetry poem, I want to love the world. It was one of those poems that um, just from the first line, uh, there's just such a great line break in that first line, um, and and I just knew, oh, this is going to be good. And then it, and then it turned out to be really moving and the kind of poem that that you know just makes you feel and and feel all connected and and the sort of the way we're all experiencing the world in similar ways. Um, do you talk a little bit about what inspired the poem and, and how it came to be? I was, uh, well, I am completely obsessed with the thing that's happening in Ukraine. I mean, I'm old enough so that um, I was sort of born in the shadow of World War II. You know, my dad served. Um, and it. I look at these pictures and it looks like World War II to me. And I just... I keep reading the news. I try not to because it freaks me out. But um, um, I hate war. And I was heavy peace movement when I was in the 70s. Uh, you know, and I, I, I marched and all that. And, uh, you know, and here's this brutal war, except everybody has a cell phone. So we're getting it in very real time, you know, incredibly intensely. And I read an article in the Washington Post um about uh, the coroner in Kiev and the job he does every day. And I link to it. I do not suggest that you read that unless you're in a good state of mind because it's a freak out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard to read. But that he cares so much about his job and that he burns, he really does burn church incense as he works. Yeah. 
uh, for reasons other than poetic, unfortunately. But um, uh, uh, and I was very moved by it. And um, I also, because I'm old, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be seventy. Uh, I, I I sometimes feel pushed aside and um, uh, sort of like I walk on the street and I'm kind of transparent. You know, when I was a kid, I was blonde. I got a lot of attention, you know. Uh, and now I'm kind of like, I, I, I'm sort of just watching. And uh, so that line about the world walking by me, you know, that's, I think old people feel that way sometimes, mm. you know. And so it started, and, and I think there's some stuff in the poem that's about being old and feeling time getting by. Uh, and these last few years, there was another article I read somewhere um, about how people my age feel so ripped off because, you know, this was supposed to be the time where we traveled Europe or, you know, we did all this great stuff. And first there's a pandemic that preys particularly on elders. And, and, and uh, then there's this God awful war. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't want to be feeling sorry for myself. Look at this nice study. Look at this nice kitty cat. You know, uh, I'm safe. Uh, but uh, oh my goodness, things are tough. <laughs> yeah, and there's just this sense of helplessness everywhere too. Like we can't yeah. do anything about anything. It feels like. Yeah. I mean, we're just here observing and wishing we could do things. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. I learned how to sing in Ukrainian. Um, oh really? I yeah. Well, phonetically, I mean, you know, I can I can sing in Ukrainian like Abba can speak English. You know? <laughs> <laughs> my husband is a choir director we did uh we did a traditional ukrainian uh, easter uh, anthem uh both last week which was easter for people in uh you know the western church and this week in the eastern church in the orthodox church it's easter mm -hmm. so we, we did it this week too yeah well, i'm glad you could get back in time too for uh for joining us today yeah 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 it was cool um, so you want to go ahead and read this? I want to live. Yeah, sure. I want to love the world. Sure. Okay. I want to love the world. I want to love the world, but I'm tired of it walking by me on the street and not even waving and making so much noise late at night. It's a parked car with closed tight windows and the radio thumping. It's been outside my house for weeks. How can you think of anything else with all that artillery? I want to love the way early afternoon looks on the stone floor of my office, how pollen's dust on my windows casts a golden shadow. But that only reminds me it's getting later. And now I can't tell you what I was trying to say. The world has interrupted me. And why should it care about that? I want to love the world, but I'm tired. In Kiev, the coroner burns church incense to each face he uncovers, he says, how? How did this happen to you? Yeah, yeah, such a beautifully moving poem that I want to love the world. 
Um, thanks so much for sharing that, Chris. It was just great to You're hear welcome. and great to see you in person for, I don't know if this is the first time. I think you might've been on once before, but it's good to see you again. Yeah. 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 I, I'm, I may have, I, you know, I can't remember. I zoomed so much. <laughs> I was just everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. It was good to see you and hope to see you again soon. Sure thing. Yep. Sure thing. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Yes, yeah, so that was Christine Potter with I Want to Love the World. Today's poem on uh, Poets Respond. Let me make sure there's no one else in the waiting room. The, the link is still there if anyone wants to join us. I think we have a few minutes left. I think I will um, see if we had some poems from last week that people wanted to share. If you want to pop on Zoom and still share a poem, feel free. Um, but let's go to um, uh, Ted Guevara's poem. Um, he's got um, a photo which he likes to send, which is always fun to show. His poem is, uh, is the, the prompt poem. Young, or Jung is summoned from the dead to collect another archetype, is his poem. And he included this image, which I will put on screen right now. Um, if for those just listening, it's a, um, a road going into a doorway into the hum- a human brain. So he didn't mention where this comes from. It's a fascinating painting. And there's a, there's a compass rose uh, up there on the corner, too. Very interesting piece. It kind of laid out as if it's on a map. Looks kind of like maybe it's the brain is an island floating in water. Very interesting piece. If you want to um, uh, check it out, if you if you want to check it out by watching the live stream, if you're only listening. Um, but here is Ted's poem. Um, Jung is summoned from the dead to collect another archetype. The most open-minded animals in the woods judge their peers with closed-door approach. And they look to Jung and apply themselves as the ideal archetype. They say, I fit that one. Yes, that's me. The only problem is they nestle in their chosen holes uncomfortably. They judge the one not finding a hole an outcast. Jung asks why. They just shrug and explain the animal in them. But Jung says me, too, is an animal. The one you judge has a different pelt, but speaks not from that pelt, but from his gut. How can you be so open of your judgment, and so shallow of what would take place? Gut is mine without the physical sinew your creative cognizance may have seen in the human anatomy. Be hungry of your own diet, for it is not eaten. You choose to devour commonality and label yourself mediocrity. All the other archetypes run away from you. Except Sage, she's trying hard to share her knowledge. And Magician, he can't well run while trying to pull out an extra bunny of compassion out of his ass. So, um, and great uh, accidental line break across the page there, Ted. The out of his ass all alone. That was Jung is summoned from the dead to collect another archetype uh, by Ted Bernal Guevara. Thanks as always for sharing that. Ted, let me see if anybody else had one they wanted me to read. I think Don Bud's back. John, did you want to read? You sent me another poem. Do you want to read that? <laughs> hey, Don. Hi. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you. Uno momento, por favor. Okay. There we go. Okay, so you sent a point of no return as well. I did. I did. I just wrote this one um, to the prompt point of no return for a writing group. I'm a writer's group, yo. <laughs> okay, writer's well, well, let's hear it. Point of no return. Point of no return. Point of no return. Point of sale. Point of soul. Point of pencil poked a hole. Paper couldn't fake it. There's a hole there. Can't cover it with whiteout. Convinced 
convincing yourself it's the same patch over and again it's not the same there's a hole and a patch and smears and texture now maybe it's got some grittiness to the grain how now do you write can you see a picture to trace usable space is at a premium when you need to write any scrap will do when you need a roof a mouthful a moment to just fucking breathe i believed in recycling reducing reuse they called me refuse why am I always the one left holding the white trash bag? He said to me the week after he proposed. It was a petty thing. I didn't wish him dead. I just cried instead. But then he dies out of nowhere. Pencils poke holes in paper. Butchers, parchment, notebook, three ply. Why deny it? We're all at the point of no return. No plan at B, no plan at all. I took the brick from the back of his toilet. Displacing trace amounts of water means nothing compared to golf clubs in Arizona or BP drilling down the road or a sale on bottles. So suck it up. We've reached the point of absolutely no returns. <laughs> Very good. Thanks so much for sharing that. that. And a bonus poem from Don Bud. Thanks, Don. Okay. And now here's that poem from Sean Hu Lee I was mentioning. Um, I'm just going to end the meeting so um here's the poem from sean who this was last week's poem um uh two sides of the same coin and this is a pantoum again so uh the second pantoum um and i'm um, sorry sean who couldn't make it today should i leave it for for next time she, well yeah she'll probably have a new poem next time this is none of your business by sean who it's none of your business whether i am married or not it's my life it's my choice whether I have children or not, whether heterosexual or homosexual, some choose one way or another, whether sexual or asexual, is one way better than the other? Some choose one way or another. Who said we should have it all? Is one way better than the other? What if I don't want to live at all? What, what if I don't want to have it all? Who said we should have it all? Who defines my happiness? I don't want to have it all. Is one side of the coin better than the other? Who defines my happiness? You cannot have both sides of the coin. Is one side of the coin better than the other? This is the law of thermodynamics. You cannot have both sides of the coin. It's my life. It's my choice. This is the law of thermodynamics. It's none of your business. Hey, great. That was Sean Hu Lee with, um, with none of your business. Excellent pantoum. Thanks for sharing that last week. Sorry we didn't get to it. Um, I'm not sure what happened. Maybe that was two weeks ago. No, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was. She joined right when we uh, were about to leave. Okay. Let's see. Hmm. Okay, so I'm going to do, I'm going to share, since I mentioned that, let's share that Molly Cat Jones poem from, um, uh, this was the first poem Christine Potter published. Uh, well, no, Christine Potter didn't publish this. Her cat, Molly Cat, published this poem. And, um, um, oh, there's no audio. I should have had her stay to read it. But this is Unholy Sonnet Number 1 from uh, Molly Cat Jones. This was in the Tribute to Sonnets issue number 32. So let's read this really quickly, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up the show. Molly Cat Jones. Actually, let me, uh... Molly Cat Jones. 
My bowl of lamb and gravy from the can appears each morning when at last you rise. An hour ago I batted at your eyes, and it's been two since first the birds began. My brother has already fouled the pan. You slept right through this scra his scratching and his cries, their tone suggesting something oversized and fetid, for which you'd require bran. Your feet are on the floor, that's a relief. Your awkward fingers soon will pop the lid. I yearn for, giving proof to my belief that God made humans well the way he did. You big ones, lacking claws and feline verb, were clearly planned to open cans to serve. So there we go. And, um, you know, I have an older cat now, and um, I understand this poem much more than I did in 2009 when we, uh, <laughs> when our cats were young. Um, this is Molly Cat Jones. Um, it's always nice to get the perspective of a cat with unholy sonnet number one. And of course, that's actually Christine Potter, which hopefully, oh yeah, she writes it down right there, that it's actually Christine Potter. Um, unholy sonnet number one. And um, let's see, so today... I didn't have a poem myself, and neither did Megan. It's been a busy week, a surprisingly busy week. I thought it was going to, my, my you know, life and, and schedule had cleared up a little bit, getting the, uh, the summer issue ready and getting the, uh, the taxes done and all that stuff. But then, if you haven't noticed, uh, we have a whole new system now for emails for the daily poem. I had to set that up because the old system sort of suddenly collapsed overnight. Um, poems couldn't be formatted anymore. If you let the last two poems that were sent out through our uh, jetpack version had no line breaks and each line was double spaced, and there was no way to fix that. Um, they sort of simplified their servers or something or, or the, the formatting of the email and uh, it just ruined it for poetry. I mean, it's fine if you're just writing prose, uh, but anyway, so we had to make a change. We switched to constant contact. If anybody would like to sign up for, um, for the daily poem and hasn't, and you haven't been receiving it the last couple of days, it's because you have to sign up for constant contact now, but we are, um, I was able to transfer most people automatically. So just go to rattle.com slash sign up. If you'd like to find that now, here's my psyche for the week, just to close out the show. And, uh, it was based on this article, um, which you know, I'm always just fascinated by ancient prehistory. And here's an interesting article about it. This is, um, this is from uh, the University of York. And the, the topic, prehistoric people created art by firelight, new research reveals. And what they did, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with the, the caves at Lascaux, um, you know, there are those paintings that are done clearly with the idea of a, of a torch being uh, held up as they're painting because the way the, the, the shadows move, there's a great... Um, a great documentary about it. I can't remember. Um, it's a Werner Herzog documentary. Um, if you want to watch that, it's wonderful. But um, but the the art there, the the you know the bulls and and other animals um, sort of appear to move, and they use the shapes of the cave walls to make the faces and things like that. And so the way that the candles, the the flame light flickers, makes it um, beautiful and is part of the art. But this was looking at um, engravings on stones. And they called these stones, what was the word they had for it? Um, they called these stones plaquettes. But they have these stones that have carvings, much like the caves. And what they found, and you can see one, a little one in the fire here. You see these carvings around the fire. And what they showed is that the original art, um, you know, these, since they're not in a cave, could have been done, they could have been made in daylight, um, like we would make things on, in broad daylight. Um, but in fact, they were made and used at night around the fire because they all had these, um, you know, um, 
evidence of heat scarring. So you can imagine, like it's shown in this picture, if you zoom in well enough, that the, here the stones are laid in a circle around the fire, which was sort of staving off all the wild animals and letting them sleep peacefully out in the open. And, um, and the use of the flame was to light up the artwork, which they had on display and some kind of thing, sharing stories and making art around a campfire, like kind of like what we're doing right here with Poets Respond, except, um, or with the Rattlecast, I should say, except that it's uh, <laughs> during the day instead of at night. But, um, but they were actually doing it at night. So that's what these, these uh, this researchers at the University of York proved. And uh, here is my Saiku based on that. Our Faces in the Firelight, an Old Story. Our Faces in the Firelight, an Old Story. That is your Saiku for today, and that is the show for today. Thanks to everybody who joined me. Wonderful guests. Um, Janice and Harrington was great. Um, Christine Potter, wonderful poem today. Um, Amy Miller at the very beginning. Um, thanks to all you and everybody who shared poems on the open mic. It was a wonderful round of poems, as it always is. I just love sitting around here and doing this. Uh, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Aaron Murphy. Um, Aaron Murphy is the uh, the Reader's Choice Award winner for the Internet of Things from last year's Rattle Poetry Prize. She has a whole bunch of books. Her most recent is Taxonomies. I'm not sure what we're going to be focusing on most, but Taxonomies is the brand new one, so I, so I assume that. Um, and I haven't read it yet. It's coming in the mail to me right now, but I'm looking forward to it. That is Rattlecast number 142 with Aaron Murphy. Oh, and the prompt for this week was two... The prompt for this week was write a poem based on a classic novel. That is your prompt for this week. Write a poem based on a classic novel. So um, enjoy that. And then enjoy our guest, Aaron Murphy, on Rattlecast number 142 at the regular time, Sunday, May 1st, 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime. We'll see you for the Critique of the Week and all that as well. Talk to you soon, and take care. Goodbye.